At this time, we'd like to dismiss the children to Children's Church. You can follow Miss Sarah at the back. Uh, you know, what's kind of interesting is uh, 100 years ago, maybe 50 years ago, maybe as soon as just 150 years or 50 years ago, in our nation, if you were to ask people, why is it that people are so cruel? Why do people do bad things? Why do people hurt other people? Why do kids abuse animals? Why do, why do people engage in such poor behaviors? If you were to ask our nation a hundred years ago, or if you were to ask traditional cultures today, why are people so bad? They're going to give you the same sort of answer. Pride. Uh, Aristotle called it hubris. The reason that people do so many bad things, the reason that so many people get incarcerated, the, the reason that people are so hateful and violent is pride. People just think too highly of themselves. Now, the interesting thing is, in a period of maybe 50 years, certainly within 100 years, this nation's kind of done a flip-flop. The consensus is entirely the opposite of what it used to, used to be. The consensus now in contemporary societies, and this is especially true in the West, especially it's true in America, the consensus is the reason people behave so poorly, the reason people are so angry, the reason people abuse animals, the reason people hurt other people is because they have too low a view of themselves. In fact, our nation has become so preoccupied with high self-esteem that it's almost institutionalized. It's it's basically a, a, a priority, especially in the elementary level, to help students to have a higher self-esteem. It is at the basis of the way in which we treat incarcerated prisoners. We try to help them to feel better about themselves, have a higher view of themselves. It almost goes without saying that if you're a counselor, you need to help people to have a higher view of themselves, increase their self-esteem. because. We all understand that if everybody just had a high self-esteem, if everybody would just regard themselves more highly, well, most of society's problems would go away because the reason that we do the bad things that we do, the reason we behave so poorly, the reason husbands beat their wives, the reason children abuse their animals, the reason we speak so harshly to one another is because we have too low a view of ourselves. How many of y'all remember, or maybe you're old enough to remember, that it used to be the primary answer was people think too highly of themselves, and now it's like, no, people think too lowly of themselves. Okay, Jared over here. How old are you, Jared? Like 24? I mean, you know, things change. Now, fortunately, there have been some studies, actually quite a bit of studies over the last two decades in particular, that have reviewed the scientific literature that have done the social experiments, and they basically concluded that what our society has institutionalized, that is this idea that self-esteem is central to a person's success and happiness and good behavior or poor behavior, whatever the case may be, scientific studies have basically demonstrated that maybe that this preoccupation, this nas national preoccupation with self-esteem was never really founded in science in the first place. How many of you, I'm kind of curious, you ever listened to the briefing with Albert Moeller? Is that? Okay, a few of us. I would recommend that because I'm getting this information largely from him because this was almost 20 years ago that he pointed out this, really, it should have been a nation-changing kind of a study. 
there were these four well-known prominent psychologists who got together to review all of the studies and all of the experiments and all of the scientific literature up until that point, which was basically the end of 2004. I'm going to mention these scientists. Um, the four of them were Roy F. Baumeister, Jennifer D. Campbell, Joachim I. Kruger, and Kathleen DeVos. And that's why I went, never went into science, because you never find a, a prominent science, scientist named Smith or Jones. It's just too boring. Uh, but anyways, there... These four psychologists get together, and they, they did this study, this, this really a, quite an involved study and review that was sponsored by the American Psychological Association. And then their findings were published in the Scientific American, the 2005, January 2005 edition. So this is not, you know, Internet clickbait, okay? This is legitimate, scientific-sponsored review. And their findings came out in an article that was entitled Exploding... The self-esteem myth. And here's what the authors concluded. Boosting people's sense of self-worth has become a national preoccupation. Yet surprisingly, research shows that such efforts are of little value in fostering academic progress or preventing undesirable behavior. Now, there are all kinds of things that they discovered in the study. And one of the more interesting observations was that people who have a high Self-esteem, a high view of themselves, tend to have a very high view of the world. In other words, if you're rather Pollyannish and everything is roses and sunshine, then you're going to have a high view of yourself. But they also discovered that people who had a low view of themselves suffered from what is called flossy nausy nilapilification, which was the first word that Shelby spoke at the age of uh, 18 months. And don't and don't get full of yourself because Nathan's first word was super califragilistic expialidocious. But anyways, I digress. Flousy, now see, nilapilification is basically you're an Eeyore. You just see everything as gray and nothing really is, is worth anything. If you have a negative view of the world, you have a tendency to just have a negative view of the self. It's just, it really didn't say that much about self-esteem. It just had to do with the person's value of the world in general. One of the other things that was kind of interesting in their study is they, they kind of contradicted what most proponents of high self-esteem think. And that is, most proponents of high self-esteem will say, if people would just have a higher self-esteem, they wouldn't be so prejudicial. You know, there'd be less racism, there'd be less, there'd be less prejudice against people on the basis of race or ethnicity or gender or religious beliefs or lack thereof. And the study demonstrated that's just not true. If you want to be around people who don't judge you on the basis of your skin color or ethnicity or religion or background or whatever the case may be, be around people with low self-esteems. They're just nicer. The other thing that was kind of interesting in the study is the authors of it said most of the time, if not almost always, there is this confusion of causation with correlation between self-esteem and performance or lack thereof or good behaviors or bad behaviors. It said that there might be a correlation between high self-esteem and success or high self-esteem and good behavior or happiness, but it doesn't demonstrate causation. Here's how they put it. Let me read this to you. If high self-esteem brings about certain positive outcomes, it may well be worth the effort and expense of trying to instill this feeling. But if the correlations mean simply that a positive self-image is a result of success or good behavior, which is, after all, at least as plausible, there is little to be gained by raising self-esteem alone. You understand what I mean by correlation versus causation? Just because there's a correlation, that doesn't mean one side causes the other. It could be 
that if you're successful, if you perform well, if you make good choices and are doing decent things and, and you're just happy in life, that's probably going to cause a high self-esteem. But does a high self-esteem cause better performance or success? But most of the studies, they don't demonstrate that. Or put a little bit differently, if you do poor behaviors and you hurt people and and you never succeed, you're always failing, is that going to produce a low self-esteem or does a low self-esteem produce those things? The, the studies don't demonstrate causation in one direction or another. It's often assumed. What they did find is that commonly when people have their self-esteem boosted for the sake of the self-esteem, quite apart from any behaviors or performance, oftentimes the behaviors would get worse or the performance would lessen. That is to say, if you t- and this kind of makes sense, if you tell somebody, hey, you can do whatever you do is awesome. And then the kid does whatever they feel like doing, which is punching somebody in the nose or talking back to their teacher. Well, whatever you do is awesome. Well, you know, and I know that whatever I feel like doing in the moment, especially in my flesh, is not always the best thing. Thinking highly of yourself might actually produce bad behaviors or performance, even simple things like you can do this. You got this. And then somebody thinks really highly of themselves. Guess what's going to happen? They're not going to practice. If they think they, that, they, that they're already awesome at basketball, they may not practice as much. They may not shoot as many free throws. And so they go into the game and they perform poorly. Why? Because they got built up too much. It wasn't in keeping with reality. The, what about all these programs that have been going on for decades? Government-sponsored programs, corporate-sponsored programs, programs where individuals are making lots and lots of money in the self-help sections of bookstores and Amazon.com. What about all this stuff? Here's what the authors also determined. They said, we have found little to indicate that indiscriminately promoting self-esteem in today's children or adults just for being themselves offers society any compensatory benefits beyond the seductive pleasure it brings to those engaged in the exercise. Okay, in short, standing in front of the mirror and saying, I'm good enough and I'm smart enough and doggone it, people like me, probably doesn't really produce much other than maybe an increase in narcissism which can be self-destructive. Now, the reason I bring all this up is, is, is I say, maybe we're kind of missing a whole lot in our society when it comes to Self-esteem. And you say, well, Ernest, are you for low self-esteem? No. Most of us would say intuitively, I don't want people to think poorly about themselves. And, and yet on the flip side, well, thinking highly about oneself doesn't seem to be the solution to much either. Is there any help for us when it comes to thinking about how do I need to perceive myself or how do I need to, to, to view myself so that I am a better person and so that I do succeed and so that I am happier. Now, is there a better way or a more excellent way of seeing things? The Apostle Paul at the end of chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians says, and now I will show you a more excellent way. And then in chapter 13, verse 4, Paul says, love, he's talking about love as the more excellent way. He says, love does not boast. It is not proud. Now, I want to put some flesh on those bones. What does it look like to have a particularly Christian self-understanding? The Apostle Paul gives us hints in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, but then there, there's some flesh that's put on those bones a little bit earlier in chapters 3 and 4. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read together chapter 3, verse 21 through 
chapter 4, verse 7. Let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. Paul writes, So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. Then in chapter 4 we read, So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over another. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, this is a very thick passage. We're going to take a couple of weeks to cover it. But I, I love the, the text because it is so otherworldly in its wisdom because what we see presented here in this text gives us a, a whole other way of viewing the self and a whole other way of regarding the self that the traditional view and the contemporary view cannot provide. What we're dealing with here is something that is kind of off the charts or off the spectrum, so to speak. Because in this passage, Paul is telling us a couple of things. One, he's showing us the natural state of the human ego, the fallen state or the natural state of the human ego of the self. And then number two, he's contrasting against that the supernatural state of the ego. That is to say, the supernatural state that is brought about only by the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, before we understand the contrast, let's just understand the natural state of the fallen ego, okay? In this passage, when Paul talks about pride, he is using a kind of an unusual word, okay? It's a word that's used six times here in 1 Corinthians. He uses it one time in Colossians, and no other author anywhere in the Bible ever uses this same word. It's kind of unique. The word that he uses that is translated as pride or proud is a word that means overextended or swollen, overinflated, distended like a part of your body that's too full of blood or too full of air and it's just, it's overstretched. He said that's the state, that's the, that's the state of the human ego. That's the natural state of the human self. And it's an evocative word, okay? And, and so I want to spend a little bit of time thinking through the implications of this. If the fallen ego is, is swollen or, or uh, inflamed, what does that mean? Four things here, and and when I go through these, you're going to go, wow, that actually makes sense, and that's true of me. And and sometimes you can see things in yourself, but you can see them more clearly in other people. But when I go through these, you're going to say, wow, that, that actually resonates with what I have observed in my own life. The four things that are true of the fallen human ego in terms of being swollen or overextended, one, it's empty, the human ego is empty. Number two, 
there's a pain. It's painful. Then number three, it's busy dealing with the pain and the emptiness. And then number four, it's fragile. These are all true of the, of the ego in its natural state. Okay, first of all, there's emptiness. Now, you've heard this before, and I've, I've said this, maybe you've said this, that there is a God-shaped, God-sized hole at the center of every human soul. And we don't have time to go through that. It's a very biblical idea and concept that you were made for relationship with God. We know this from the very beginning that we were made for God as God created us in his image. There's a God-shaped, God-sized hole inside of you and inside of me. And when we try to fill that God-shaped, God-sized hole with anything else, there's a sense of emptiness. Whatever you put in there that belongs to God, that space that belongs to God, it's going to rattle around in there. So if you put sports in there or achievement or success or finances, whatever the case may be, if you put it in there, if you're going to feel empty, it's going to rattle around in there. Okay, that's that's the first thing. And, and I, I think probably most of us in this room have experienced, and you've seen this being experienced by other people, a certain sense of emptiness. Sometimes we call it despair. That's the first state of the fallen human ego, the natural state of ego, emptiness. But then there's also pain. It's quite painful. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but have you noticed that you don't notice parts of your body when they're healthy? You never, you, you probably did not walk into here thinking, man, my ear is working like a charm. You know, my, my index finger on my left hand is a well-oiled machine. You, you didn't even notice the parts of your body that were healthy. But if you sprained your ankle recently or you're sore from a, a, a workout or you got knocked on the head or you have a headache, you notice Whenever something is swollen because there's too much blood in it or if it's distended because there's too much air in it or whatever the case may be, if it's swollen, overextended, overinflated, it hurts. You notice the parts that are not healthy. Okay, so now here's, here's my question for you. If you're always thinking about yourself, if you're always waiting to be offended or you're always offended or always angry, you're always feeling overlooked or you're always feeling like you, you had to take the back seat and you're always feeling put off. If you're, if you're always noticing yourself, what does that say? You're not healthy. The self that is preoccupied with the self is not in a healthy state. You're, you're filled with pain. Why? Something's wrong. You're, you're, you're swollen. You, you're, Yourself is sprained. It's, it's inflamed. That's the state of the ego. Emptiness and it's painful. Now, if you're feeling empty and if you're filled with pain, what are you going to do? You're going to try to fill the emptiness. You're going to try to lessen the pain. And so there are two things that we do getting busy dealing with the emptiness and the pain. And they're very, very common to people. There's comparison, and then there's boasting, okay? Paul alludes to both of these things in this passage. He actually speaks to both of these things directly in this particular passage. First of all, there is the comparison. You'll, you'll notice that Paul makes reference to this whole thing that was going on in Corinth. Like, okay, here's Apollos over here, and he's super teacher, and here's Paul over here. He's bald with a crooked nose, and he's... He writes really strong, but he's not really strong personally. But he was there in the beginning. And some people, they stick with Paul. And other people, they go with Apollos. And maybe one is better than the other. It always depends upon how you compare yourself with other people. You know, that's the other thing about comparing. 
If you compare yourself to other people and you get to choose the list of comparing items, you're always going to come out ahead. If you're, if you're on the shorter side, I'm better at being a jockey. If you're on the taller side, I'm better at being a basketball player. If you play an instrument, I'm better at music. If you play sports, I'm better at sports. Whenever people compare themselves to other people, they always get to choose their own list, so they're going to come out ahead. So some people resonate with Paul, some people with Apollos, and there's this competitive thing going on. And Paul says, this is ridiculous. It's got to stop. And he says, then you will not take pride in one man over against another. He sees the competitiveness that's going on, and he attributes it to pride. See, pride is always necessarily competitive. It's just the nature of pride to compete and to compare. Uh, there's a famous chapter on pride in Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, and he makes a wonderful observation. He says, when you're, when, when you're dealing with pride, you may think you take pride in your athleticism, or you take pride in your good looks, or you take pride in in your intelligence or success. So, but if you say, I'm taking pride in this, you don't actually enjoy that. In fact, you don't even take pride in that. You're taking pride in having something or more of something than somebody else has of that something. You, you say, well, no, no, I'm really proud of being intelligent. No, you're not. Like, what do you mean? Well, if all of a sudden you're around a, a room full of 180 IQ people, all of a sudden you don't feel so smart anymore. All of a sudden you're not taking pride in your intelligence. You know why? Because you were only proud of your intelligence because you thought you were more you were more intelligent than the people who were around you. You thought you had more of the thing than the other people had of the thing. Or you're like, I'm really proud of my athletic ability. Yeah, yeah. And then you're in the middle of a room of professional athletes who are getting paid millions of dollars for their athleticism. And all of a sudden, you're not proud of being athletic anymore. What is that? You weren't proud of being athletic. You were just proud of having more of the something than the other people who are around you. But now that you have less of the something than other people, you see you weren't proud of your athleticism. You weren't proud of your intelligence. You weren't proud of your success at all. You were just proud that you had more of the something than other people had of that something. You didn't even enjoy what you thought it was that you were enjoying because the nature of pride is competitive. It sucks the life out of things that would otherwise be life-giving. Let me give you another example. And C.S. Lewis gives this example. He says, if a man lusts after a woman, he might act upon that lust, but at least he is desiring the woman. At least he takes pleasure in the woman. But if you have pride, you just want that woman so somebody else doesn't have the woman, or you want more women so that the other guy doesn't have as many women, and so you're not taking pleasure in the thing. You're just taking pleasure in having more of the thing or more of the, of the people than the other people are having. Pride robs even sin of a season of enjoyment. Pride certainly robs people from enjoying the God-given gifts that are given to them. Like, I enjoy my backyard. I enjoy my house. Well, if your backyard is bigger than your neighbor's and you're taking pride in your backyard, you're not even enjoying your backyard. You're just enjoying having more of what the other person doesn't have. I know I'm kind of going fast. Is this making sense? Let me go, let me go at it like this. And, and I'm not trying to pick on anybody, okay? I'm, I'm just give you a, an example, and I want you to be honest about this. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or anything like that, so you can be honest, okay? Suppose that I'm a genie, okay? I'm a pastor, but I'm also a genie, which means I can grant your wish. The, at, at one moment, I can make everybody happy at the same time. It'll be fantastic for me and for you, okay? So I'm going to give you one of two wishes, Okay, here, here are your options. I'm going to snap my fingers. It's going to be true of you. What do you want? Here's option number one. I can snap my fingers, and immediately you can have a 7,000-square-foot home, brand new, with a pool in the backyard and a waterfall. 
It's going to be an awesome house. And I'm going to guarantee you'll have $700,000 a month. No, no, let's not get crazy. $700,000 a year. That'll be your salary guarantee for the rest of your life. 7,000 square foot home, $700,000 salary. Snap my fingers just like that. But your house is going to be located in the middle of Beverly Hills, which means you're going to have the smallest salary in the smallest home of everybody around. In fact, it'll be obvious to everybody that yours is the worst house in the whole town of which you're a part. But it's a 7,000 square foot home and $700,000 a year. Or I could snap my fingers and you've got a 2,000 square foot home and it's, it's okay. No pool. Small backyard, but it's 2,000 square feet. It's okay. And you're going to have $100,000 a year but you're going to be making twice as much as anybody in town, and your house is going to be nicer than everybody else's in town. You want the 7,000 7, square foot home with a $700,000 salary or the 2,000 square foot home with a $100,000 salary? Now, some of you, you would opt for the $700,000 salary and the 7,000 square foot home. If you're like most people, you're going to opt for the smaller home and the smaller salary. You know why that is? Pride. It wasn't about the house. It wasn't about the salary because it's not about the house and it's not about the salary now. It's about having more of the thing than the other persons have of the same thing. Now, in the first service, somebody said, well, I didn't want either of those houses because they were both located in California. Okay, so, so maybe that's you. Maybe you're ahead of the game. But if you even hesitated, okay, if you even hesitated, you thought, well, I don't know, which one would I want? You know why there's the hesitation or why you have to weigh things out, even though one situation's obviously better than the other situation? It's because oftentimes we think we're taking pride in the job or the success or the athleticism or good looks, and we weren't really, we weren't really all about that as much as we were proud about having more of the thing than somebody else was having of the thing. It's the nature of pride to be competitive. Now you say, well, why? Ooh, you know, that gives me chills. That's just, ooh, that's creepy. That's, that's kind of, that's sick, that pride. Why is it that we struggle with this? Emptiness and the pain that go with the natural state of the swollen, overextended ego. See, if, if I've got more of the thing than you've got of the thing, well, that maybe makes me feel better, and maybe my emptiness isn't quite so bad. Or I can see that you have more pain in your life than I have in my life, and that just makes my pain not so bad because I, I'm doing the comparison thing. That's how we deal with the, with the pain and with the emptiness. Now, there's the competing and the comparison stuff that happens, but there's also the boasting. That's the other busyness of the soul to deal with the pain and the emptiness. And boasting's a little bit different than comparing. Let me explain what I mean by this. You, you probably, at some point or another, have done some things that you didn't really enjoy doing but you, because you were building up a resume to get in at, at this work or to get in at a college or maybe just to get in with some people around you. You did some service projects or you involved yourself in some math club or whatever the case was because you knew it would look good on your resume. You weren't doing it because you enjoyed it. You were building a resume because you wanted to get in. So you could boast on your resume. It wasn't that these were bad things. It's just that you did some things that you wouldn't otherwise do because you just wanted to be let in. 
That's boasting. It's not exactly comparing, but you're wanting other people to regard you or you're wanting to be commended by other people. Now, that's how it is with getting into colleges or getting jobs, but we do this all the time with other people. Let's suppose that you, let's just suppose that you really, really like you too, and you believe that Bono was God's gift to mankind. But you've moved into a community where 90% of the people prefer country music and Garth Brooks. Well, what do you do? If you're like a lot of people, here's what you're going to do. You're going to start memorizing the lyrics to Garth Brooks songs. You're going to trade in your Tesla for F-150. And uh, you're going to start listening to more country music, and you're going to be able to identify for everybody around you because they like Garth Brooks and you like Garth Brooks. So why are you doing this? Because you want to be let in. It's not that it's your... I'm not saying that country music isn't bad. I'm not taking sides of one or the other. I'm just saying sometimes we do certain things so that we can boast, so we can get in, so we can get commended by other people. It's not exactly competition, but it's boasting. You've known people who maybe they... You know the kid in high school, he was six foot eight and he played the flute. And you thought, why aren't you playing basketball? And he's just thinking, I don't like basketball. I like the flute. But maybe because he wanted to be let in, he started playing basketball, not because he liked it, but because that was his entrance into commendation from other people. Why do we do this? Why do we compete? Why do we boast? Emptiness and pain. And if I can be let in and commended by other people, it fills the emptiness, it lessens the pain. And if I can compete and compare and feel better about myself because I have more of these things than other people have. It's dealing with my emptiness. It's dealing with my pain. Does that make sense? Do you like, oh, that, that just seems like otherworldly insight. It is. There's a fourth thing that's true about the natural state of the ego, and that is it's fragile. Because when you get right down to it, you have to be filled with something. You can't just be filled with you. When you say people are full of themselves, what do you mean? Well, I'm full of myself because I've got more of the thing than you have or because I've done more of these things than you've done. There's always something else that is bloating you. If you run, if you run to somebody or you see somebody who says, I just, I hate myself. I feel terrible about myself. You know, I'm so deflated. What they mean is at one point I was inflated. It's a continuum. You're inflated or you're deflated, but it's all the same. You think too highly of yourself. You think too low of yourself, but you're always thinking about yourself. It's all on the same continuum. And the reason that sometimes you deflate or sometimes you inflate is because you've put other things in you that are like thin air. Uh, I, I think it's helpful maybe sometimes to think of ourselves as a, as a balloon. I got way too big of a balloon. I'm sorry. I just I didn't notice how much it was going to take to blow this thing up. But let's, you're a balloon. You're deflated right now. And, and you want to fill the emptiness. Solomon, in the book of Ecclesiastes, early, early on, he says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all things are vain, all things are vain. Empty, emptiness, emptiness, worthless, worthless, pointless, pointless, futility, futility. He's saying everything under the sun, which is his way of saying everything in this closed system of this world, excluding God, it's just like air. And we want to fill ourselves up with knowledge, which is what Solomon did or different women experiences, which is what Solomon did, or riches, which is what Solomon did, or conquered lands, which is what Solomon did, or popularity, and on and on and on. And he says it's all vanity. It's just like this. Now you're a little, little 
inflated. But whether you're a little inflated or a lot. And you know what? Since I do have ego issues myself, if y'all would clap, it would help me to keep going. All right. Thank you, Sean. See, I stop as soon as you stop, Sean. Keep going. Come on now. Let's go. Okay, that's, I'm getting a headache. All right, here's the point. It's, whether it's inflated, slightly deflated, a lot of deflated, or way down here, I don't know what it is. At every point, the balloon's just a balloon. I mean, that's it. At every point, the balloon's just a balloon. You know how balloons are? Even if you tie them off, over time they get deflated. And there's a peak that people hit in their appearances. I'm... I've heard that for men it's 65. Uh, I don't know. There's a peak. Yeah. Okay, sorry. I guess that's not true, Michael. Uh, anyways, there's a peak of athleticism. Maybe it's 25. Maybe there's a peak for appearance. It's 26 or whatever. There's a peak of success. Maybe it's 55. I don't know. But nobody ever stays at their peak of anything. It, it all at some point or another does this. And when it's all said and done, you thought you were something other than yourself. But at the end of the day, you're, you're still just a, a balloon. Where, where's the hope in all of this? Well, you need something than just vanity of vanities. You need something other than emptiness of emptiness. You need something solid at the core. Because if you just put air in there, a little pinhole, it bursts. You put water in there, it bursts. Maybe if there was concrete in there, it would just stay because the inflation level of the balloon, the weight of the balloon, it's not really about the balloon, is it? It's about what's inside of the balloon, what is contained within the balloon. And this is largely what Paul is driving at when he says, look at what you have. Look who's inside of you. Look at the glory that you contain. Let's let's go back to this very thick verse that Paul says over at the end of... Uh, Chapter 3. Paul says this. So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or future. All are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. Now, that is a super thick verse. Let me just put it to you as simply as I know how to put it. Paul so far has been saying, look, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. You have God, almighty God, glorious God, weighty God who makes concrete look like air. You've got God and he's inside of you. That's why you're the temple, not because you're, you're all that special. You are special because God indwells you. And when you are indwelled by God, you know, here's how it works. You're of Christ and Christ is of God. God indwells you through Christ. And since you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and since you are... Given the Holy Spirit by His grace, you're in the same boat as Paul and Apollos and Cephas because they have what you have. You don't need to envy them because they have what they have and it's all entirely by their grace. Now, they may have different gifts, but the gifts were given for the common good. And so what is theirs is yours and what is yours is theirs and they're a gift to the church, but you're a gift to the church too. So Apollos is yours and Paul is yours and Cephas is yours and actually the whole world is yours because he holds the whole world in his hand and... He is the author of life and he's the conqueror of death and 
He holds the present and the future. All are yours. Why is it all? Why do you have all of this already? Because you're of Christ and Christ is of God. So if you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God, if you're of Christ and Christ is of God, if he indwells you, why in the world are you trying to fill some empty space with sports or an upgrade? What is wrong with you? Here's what Paul is saying. You know what's wrong with you? You have forgotten who you have, what you have in Christ, in God. See, when it's all said and done, it's not about you. And I know sometimes we say that, oh, it's not about you, like we're trying to deflate you. That's not what Paul's getting at. As if the only option to us is a low self-esteem or a high self-esteem. Oh, it's not about you. I need to deflate you. That's not what it's, it's not about you means. It's not about you means... You shouldn't have a low self-esteem. You shouldn't have a high self-esteem. You shouldn't, you shouldn't be regarding yourself at all. You know what the solution is to your happiness, to your joy, to your performance, to your behavior? It's that you would be regarding God. C.S. Lewis also put it like this. This, I believe, is in mere Christianity. That pride is not about thinking less of yourself. It's a, or humility is not about thinking less of yourself. Humility is about thinking of yourself less. In the first service, someone observed this. The happiest I ever am is when I'm not thinking about myself at all. That's true, isn't it? You're, you're focused on your kids. You're focused on service. Or maybe in a worship service, you're just focused on the Lord. And in those moments when you forget yourself, there's the most joy. Why is that? Because it's not about you. Let me change the metaphor a little bit from the balloon to, to the box. Like most of you, Gene and I, we get a lot of stuff from Amazon.com. And, in fact, we get so many things, and it's so frequent, that we sometimes will get a box, and we don't remember what it was. It's like, oh, it's Christmas. We've got a box, and we don't know what's inside. But when we receive the box, we don't go, yay, a box. It's just cardboard. It's always about what's inside the box. The glory of the box is what's inside you don't, the box doesn't need to think highly of itself or lowly of itself. It's just, what's inside the box? And this is Paul. Now, I, I couldn't find an Amazon box this morning that fits. So I took a box out of Brett's room and just emptied it out. And he'll forgive me later. But that's okay. I don't care what he thinks because I have Jesus inside of me. Okay. So it's not about the box, but here's what Paul's saying. It's like, okay, your cardboard, and, and here, here's the glory of the box. Now, you got this, and, and, and you're this. What? Wait, what? What? You're preoccupied with the box, and this is what's inside the box? Christians, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with me that I would feel like I need to put something else in the box to blow me up when I'm of Christ and Christ is of God? The, the glorious thing about Christian identity is we're not called to find our identity in ourselves. We find our identity in Christ. And when you find your identity in Christ, it's transformative, it's power, empowering, it's liberating. Because it's not about you. That's not lowering a high self-esteem. And I don't need to boost your low self-esteem. It's like we don't need to think less of ourselves or more of ourselves. We just need to think of ourselves less. How do you do that? 
By, by concentrating and trying to think of myself less? No. By recognizing all things are yours. Whether Apollos or Paul or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours because you're of Christ and Christ is of God. That should make a difference. Let's bow for a word of prayer. God, thank you for the liberation that you give us by giving us yourself because we were made for you. And, and how ridiculous things get when we try to fill the hole in the soul with anything other than you, the glorious one, the weighty one. Uh, it, it is a gift that you have given us, and the gift is yourself. So, Lord, may we find ourselves ultimately in you. May our identity be wrapped up in you. And when it is, when the emptiness is full and there is no pain uh, that that would cause us to draw attention to ourselves, we are liberated from all the comparisons and the we're liberated from the competitiveness pride and the boastfulness of pride is so great. The, the fragility is gone and it's not because we're strong but because you're strong and, and you're in us. But there's not the competitiveness of pride. And then we can just enjoy the thing for the thing. Not enjoy more of the thing because we have more of the things than other people have the things. The things that are meant to bring us joy can bring us joy. And we don't have to be someone who we're not so that we can boast and be accepted because we're all accepted by you. And so we can be fully who we've been made in Christ and fully who you've made us to be as the children that you have made us to be. All the liberation happens, not because we're so so amazing, but because you've put yourself in our little bitty box. God, thank you for the gift of your grace. Thank you for the gift of your presence. And may you, you give us the sanity to not think too highly of ourselves or too lowly of ourselves. Just give us the sanity to just think highly of you and in the process to just think of ourselves less. And Lord, if there are any here who have yet to receive Christ as Savior and Lord and find the liberty and the joy that comes from having you indwelling them, I pray you just give them the sanity to, to simply pray, God, I know that I've sinned, I've fallen short, and, and, uh, and I, I know I've not just done wrong things, I've done the things that were wrong, knowing them to be wrong, and I, I just thought that maybe, maybe, maybe I could just fill myself, and I've been foolish, and it's... It's not that these were bad things. I just made good things, ultimate things. And, and I see at the end of the road, it's just a bunch of hot air. Lord, I want you in my life. I want, I want to, to be in on the more excellent way. To be filled by you and then to enjoy life in all of its fullness. So God, I just turn from my sin and selfishness and I trust in Jesus as my Savior and Lord. You came, you lived the life I should have lived, died the death I should have died. Not just that I would be forgiven, but that I would be forgiven to be embraced. Not just so that I could be let go, but so that you could enter in and fill me with yourself. God, thank you for Jesus. And I want to spend the rest of my days just knowing what it means to have you in my life. In Jesus' name, amen.